The Digital Strategy and Management Podcast with your host, Richard DeCock. A big welcome to part two of our podcast series with Tony Elwick, the pioneer of jobs theory and inventor of outcome-driven innovation. This is the final episode of our Tony Elwick series, and we are going to continue to dive down the rabbit hole of innovation in an attempt to demystify it and get clarity on what real innovation looks like. If you missed our previous session, I highly recommend going and trying to get a listen to that before you listen to this one. We covered a lot of ground uh, in our previous episode, and we covered topics like what innovation is and how it can be defined, how Tony developed the approach that he has, and um, you know what sparked his thinking. We looked at the ideation approach to innovation and discussed how it was fundamentally flawed. And we finally got to hear where organizations should be focusing their efforts amidst all the noise around innovation today. So if you haven't heard any of that, then I suggest you go to www.thesearchforclarity.com or on your favorite podcast platform to go and listen to the episode before this one. Right, so today we are going to be delving deeper with Tony and trying to get more clarity around how the jobs to be done process actually works, how people can practically start implementing it, and we get to learn what the biggest challenges typically to adopting this approach have been for organizations and how those can be addressed. Before we start, of course, I just need to remind everyone that I'm a full-time Microsoft employee and that this podcast and the thoughts and ideas shared by myself, your host, and my guests are in no way affiliated to Microsoft's business, products, or services. And with that, let's start our hunt for clarity. When we chatted previously to our call today, you mentioned that people think they need a water walker, like the Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, to come up with these radical innovations to drive companies forward. So we don't need that. We Innovation also doesn't need to be serendipitous um, and luck-driven. What we need is a scientific, predictable approach to innovation. And this is what jobs to be done is really about. Now, we've talked a lot about sort of fragments of the, the process. Would you mind unpacking it for us and walking us through it so we could get a better understanding on how it works? Sure. And you made an interesting point, too. You said, you know, uh, some organizations have a Steve Job or Elon Musk, but not all organizations have that person. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't learn to think like those visionaries. And, and I really think that the Jobs We Done framework helps people see through a lens that some people um, already see through. And I think that's the power of that's it. That's a very, very good point as well. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, just to take you through the process, very simply, it's it's like marketing 101. So the first thing we do is we define the market. And we're going to define the market that you want to focus on is a group of people trying to get a job done. So it could be parents trying to pass on life lessons to children or an interventional cardiologist trying to restore blood flow to an artery right? or thousands of things, right? So that's how we define the market. Um, and then we define the customer's needs. And, but we're not defining needs as uh, exciters, delighters, pains, gains, this, that. You know, it's quite specifically the metrics people use to measure success when getting a job done. So we would capture those 100-plus needs through immersion sessions with customers, and they're validating and giving us these inputs in real time. So now we have a set of needs. Now we want to figure out, well, of all these needs, which ones are unmet? So this is where a quantitative element comes into play, where we would build a survey and include these 100-plus statements in the survey and ask people to tell us uh, the importance of each outcome 
as they execute that job. And the level of satisfaction given the products that they're using today. And we ask them what product they're using today too. So we know we know that. So it's great competitive right. data as well. Now right. from this we can figure out where the market's underserved. In other words, we can figure out which needs are really important and not well satisfied in the population. And we can also figure out which needs are unimportant and very satisfied in the population. Now, the reason both of those are important is because we're trying to help customers get the job done better and more cheaply. And the underserved outcomes point to where you can get the job done better. The overserved outcomes point to where you can get the job done more cheaply. Right. So now with that insight, you can take the next step is to ask the question, is this a homogeneous market or are there segments of people with different unmet needs? And then nearly every study we've run over the years, and it's been well over a thousand, uh, nearly every time there's segments of people with different unmet needs, just like we learned in Marketing 101, right? But the way we discover these is not to segment around demographics or psychographics or behavior. Which is what we're inclined to do. Yes, and that's been you know, the common practice for years. What we're going to do instead is segment around the unmet needs. So, for example, a third of the market might think, think that uh, outcomes 10, 20, and 30 are really important and unsatisfied. Another third may think outcomes 40, 50, and 60 are really important and unsatisfied, and so on. So by segmenting around the needs, these unmet needs, you'll see a segment of people, uh, a third of the market that has those you know, 10, 20, 30 is the unmet need, another with 40, 50, and 60. And then you can analyze these segments and say, who are these people? You know, why are they different? And why do they have different unmet needs? So, for example, when we did this uh, segmentation for dentists who were trying to fill a cavity in patients, uh, we found different segments. We found uh, this highly underserved segment, and we found there that when patients had unhealthy gums and required a large filling, it was really hard to get the job done because visualization was more difficult. They'd be bleeding, um, trying to keep the area dry while contouring a bigger filling all became much more difficult. On the other side of the equation, we found an overserve uh, segment. And this was when this occurred when um, the dentists were seeing patients that had healthy gums and required just a small filling. So the products that they were using for that group of people were overserving the market. Right. Right. So now, see what the important part here is we're layering on the context after we segment around the needs. And this is, I, this, this, I, you know, it's a bit confusing to a lot of people because they, yeah, because it goes against the grain in the sense that's not yeah. typically how you'd approach it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the opposite. Right. So instead of segmenting around demographics and psychographics and then seeing what unmet needs they have in those different demographics, we flip it around the other way. We segment around Absolutely. the unmet needs. And it's very rare that a demographic, characteristic really uh, explains why there's different unmet needs and why there's different segments. So that's very powerful. And the, the reason is, is because, um, you know, there's no average market, right? There's always segments of people with different unmet needs. And if you try to create a product that addresses the needs of everybody, uh, generally it will fail or be you know, too complicated or cost too much. So uh, knowing what these segments are is critical. And from there, so think of what we've done so far. We've defined the market, figured out the needs, figured out which are unmet, figured out are there segments of people with different unmet needs, right? Marketing 101. The next step is we use the insights. And sorry, just to add, I I think your publication 
really does a great job of sort of highlighting the um, those quadrants of the types of strategies you would, unless I'm jumping forward yet, Tony, I may be. I, I'm jumping forward. I'll keep quiet. You carry on. <laughs> no, you're, you're you're right on target. You're right on target. That's exactly where we're at. It's a good segue because um, you know once we have this information, then we can figure out what strategy to pursue. So right, that's exactly right. what. And we put this uh, growth strategy matrix together. Uh, that's uh, the one I'm talking about, about. Three four years ago. Yeah, I know it looks so simple. It took us three years to construct that and test it and, and make sure it um, actually is uh, predictable. Uh, and it is. I, I love that matrix. Um, and basically what it says is, you know, you create products to get a job done better and or more cheaply. So uh, you can get the job done better and potentially charge more if one of your segments is underserved and willing to pay more to get the job done better. So the research tells you if that opportunity exists and then you can pick the strategy. Or uh, you may, may pick a, a disruptive strategy if there's a highly overserved segment and people are willing to pay less to get the job done worse. Right? So we can test all that. Um, and then, of course, if you can get the job done better and cheaper, that's we call that a dominant strategy. And that always wins because you're satisfying the underserved segments, the overserved segments, and often the uh, the non-consumers as well. So. So you could you could imagine, right? It's it's always advantageous for a company to come up with a solution that gets the job done better and cheaper. Uh, you know, much like Uber did with Uber X, much like Net, Netflix did. You know, they're getting the job done better and cheaper than competitors. Who's not going to want that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's sort of make it practical for for listeners out there. If an organization or an individual uh, wants to get more of their innovation process, process and I'm, even if uh, you're working at lower rungs of the organization. I think we've highlighted through definitions before that innovation can be a simple improvement to a process. So if if you're at a a call center for argument's sakes, you can look at the jobs to be done of people calling into the call center and, you know, they want to get something sorted out. You can focus on solutionizing that so that they get a better experience um, when they're calling the call center for argument's sakes. So for anyone who's wanting to apply this book, I mean, I think it applies to everyone at any level of the organization. Um, how does one practically start adopting your approach? I mean, I've, I noticed in your, your book, you, were, you did a great job of outlining um, sort of 84-step pro- process that someone would have to go through um, to you know, f- follow out your work. And you, you call them ODI practitioners, outcome-driven innovation practitioners. I mean, do you need to be a quality specialist and understand the use of statistics to the degree that you did when you defined the model? That's a great question. I often get that. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the process and uh, innovation in general, it's that it's uh, multidisciplined, right? So as you think through that process, there's qualitative research where you're interviewing customers. There's quantitative research where you're surveying customers through an online uh, instrument. Uh, There's data analytics that follow running segmentation, uh, cluster, and factor analysis. And then there's um, actual strategy formulation you know, based on the data and trying to turn it into action. So at a very high level, I say those are the four disciplines that it takes to, to be successful. But it doesn't mean that one person has to be excellent in all four of those uh, areas, right? Uh, it, it may be four people. Uh, each having their own particular um, expertise. But um, to get started is actually rather simple. 
um, you know, we talk about this a lot in our courses, in our fundamentals class, and we call it the customer immersion session. So, you know, what, what I'd recommend to people is uh, bring five or six customers into your office one day uh, when, or, or online. Or, or remotely. <laughs> or remotely. <laughs> uh, so you don't have to wait. Yeah. And, um, and, and interview them and figure out from them what is the job they're trying to get done? How do they define it? What is the job map? How do they define it? You know, how do they measure success? Let's collect those outcomes. And in many cases, if you spend four or five hours with a set of customers um, going through this process, you're basically teaching customers how to give you these inputs. And you know, after they see the first few up on the board and they go, oh, I get it. You're trying to get me to say stuff like, you know, minimize the time it takes to do this or minimize the likelihood that that bad thing happens and so on. So before you know it, they're, they're talking in your language. And they're, you know, they're out of solution space. They're not talking about features. They're talking about jobs and outcomes. And uh, what we often see is even within, you know, four or five hour session, a team can go from not agreeing to what a customer need is uh, to a place where they agree that, hey, here's 50 or 60 customer need statements that are really well defined and validated on the spot by customers. That's the starting point. Right. And even if you only complete the job map, uh, and that's why I think that HBR piece that explains it, that's a great asset as well, because the job's stable over time. You can start analyzing uh, your products against the job map to say, you know, do any of my products get the entire job done? Do they hold the potential to? Uh, do competitors' products get the entire job done? Do they hold the potential? Are we, are we forcing people to iterate as they get the job done? because they're missing inputs upstream that are impacting the downstream activities. So all this stuff can be analyzed uh, at a very high level and improvements can be made starting day one. What, what do you think the biggest challenge to adopting um, this approach would be for organizations? Well, what I often see, it's um, maybe misunderstanding of the process. I mean, there's, lot, mm -hmm. there's many different approaches to jobs to be done. Uh, some people talk about them from a demand generation standpoint, which is more about, you know, people bought a product to get a job done. What job did they buy that product for? Let's go figure that out. And then let's advertise to other people uh, that they can buy that product to get that job done. So that's more of like a demand generation approach. I'm with you. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're talking more of, um, you know, an you know, innovation approach. You know, let's, how do you create the product that people want to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. um, so a, a lot of, um, of what we uh, propose is really about, uh, you know, creating the right products. And, you know, it fits into design thinking and agile uh, very nicely, you know, once, once you meet that up in the development process. But, you know, we're viewing everything up front as, let's make sure we're doing the right things, right? Then we can do them right. But the right things mean, we know that the product that we're about to put in development is going to win in the marketplace because it gets the job done 15 to 20% better or more. We know that before we even begin development because we know all the unmet needs, we know what our what feature set's going to look like, and we know the degree to which it's going to impact customer satisfaction. So with that insight, it makes it very hard to lose. And that's really the, the idea behind the whole approach. You know, I, I thought a long time ago when I, when the IBM thing happened, I, I thought if only we knew what metrics people were going to use to measure the success of our products when we were developing them, we could just design them 
around that metrics and we'd always win. Turns out that's true. If you define metrics as, uh, or if you define those metrics as, you know, the metrics people use to measure success when getting a job done. And you mentioned another good point there that, you know, it's that it aligns your jobs to be done framework, et cetera, aligns to, you know, agile and um, all these practices of execution. And uh, I think an important point uh, is, you know, you can have some exceptional job statements mapped out. Uh, if you don't have maturity in the way you execute against that from an operations perspective, like, you know, best practice, et cetera, you may... It's, it comes back to the quality thing. If you're not building the quality of the product, um, you know, even though you've picked up on the statements correctly, you're not necessarily going to knock that ball out of the park, are you? No, that's exactly right. Yeah, just because you know the needs doesn't mean you're going to effectively satisfy them, right? So um, and it requires a great solution to address the need, and then you have to go implement it. So yeah, there's. But what we see mostly is that companies know how to create products and they know how to implement it. Uh, but often they're just building the wrong products. You know, they're not creating <laughs> sure, yeah. they're not creating products that get the job done fifteen percent better or cheaper. Right. So we're going back to the old product uh, what nineteen fifties where we'd build products and then like vacuum cleaners and then go and knock on all the doors and say you really need this and sort of shovel the products down people's throats until they buy them. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, what hasn't changed over time though since those early days, you know, people are still buying products to get jobs done. And those companies Absolutely. who understand uh, you know, how people measure success and can pinpoint with precision uh, where to go create value, um, they're the winners in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So if you had one key message to summarize your work over the, the last uh, two decades, it's, well, it's been a lot more than that, Tony, sorry, but I, uh, you know, over, over the, your, your life, your entire life, what would your message be to provide more clarity to people bat- battling with innovation today? Yeah, I'd say, you know, keep it simple. Um, People really want to complicate this space. Um, You know, they talk about um, innovation in so many different ways, as you mentioned, Richard, it's defined in so many different ways. It sounds so complex. It really isn't. You know, it's coming up with solutions that address unmet needs, helping people get a job and better and more cheaply. It's just that simple. And um, if you can avoid all the rest of the noise that's preventing you from getting there, uh, you'll really uh, streamline your innovation process. You know, we, we view ODI as an end-to-end innovation process. It's not just a tool in the toolbox. It's a, it's a big tool It's in the toolbox because it's getting the whole front end of innovation uh, executed successfully. Well, thank you, Tony, for your time. It's been exceptionally um, thought-provoking and uh, who anyone who hasn't read Jobs to be Done or any of the um, Harvard Business Review material, any of the other material published by Tony, it is highly recommended. Really straightforward, very well laid out and uh, extremely insightful and simple to use. I can see how it's something you could literally pick up and start using from day one, as you said, Tony. So thank you for your time. And yeah, we hope to see more work coming out from you in the next couple of years. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate the opportunity. All the very best. Thank you, Tony. I know. Thank you so much for joining part two of our two-part series with Tony Elwick. We were very fortunate to get a really pragmatic view from a pioneer like Tony, and I hope that this two-part series has provided a lot more clarity on the topic of innovation for you all. It certainly has for me. You can get yourself a free copy of the Jobs To Be Done book, which has been kindly provided by Tony and his team, and I will leave a link for that in the transcription 
which you can get at www.thesearchforclarity.com. I look forward to having you join us again with our next guest in the next few weeks. Until then, keep the search for clarity continuing. Continuing.